God created man in His own image. As the image of the invisible God, we were designed to represent our Creator on earth and to partner together in community to subdue the planet for God's kingdom and for God's glory. Mankind's fall from grace into sin recorded in Genesis 3 severely corrupted that agenda. Rather than using their God-given capacity to partner together to subdue the earth to the glory of God, we find the fallen race at Babel, Genesis chapter 11, building its own kingdom for the glory of its own name. But in the fullness of time, God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, into the world in order to provide redemption from our sinful rebellion, from our rejection of God's call, from our rejection of the spread of His purposes and His name, Christ came to bring redemption. And on the night of Christ's birth, angels announced peace on earth. As the New Testament unfolds, it becomes clear that the angels did not mean peace at one place on earth. Peace on Bethlehem but rather that the peace Jesus brought was to be proclaimed across the face of the planet. And who will proclaim that message? It is none other than the new humanity created in Christ Jesus. This new community of faith comprised of people who have trusted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It will be people who have been redeemed and given life in Christ who will now join together as this new community to proclaim Christ and His saving grace to all peoples. Following the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 3, through the prophet Isaiah puts it this way, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Ultimately, that is the design. Not peace on Bethlehem, Not peace on Judea. Not peace on Israel, but peace on earth. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Word is to be proclaimed from the mountaintops, as we've just sung, and throughout the world. So as the body of Christ, now redeemed in Jesus, as partnering image bearers of God and redeemed by that grace, we are called to spread the good news of Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. In the providence of God, Eden Baptist Church has reached a crucial milestone in this enterprise. Today we formally send out our members Scott and Julie Folks, accompanied by their son Dominic, to proclaim the good news of forgiveness in Christ to unbelievers, particularly in northwest Spain. At its very core, this mission is a partnership. The folks carry a heavy responsibility to represent Christ and in a secondary sense to represent us as a church as we hold them accountable to their representation of Jesus in the Gospel. On our part, Eden Baptist Church bears a heavy responsibility to support the folks in their mission, to be their home base and those that, as the saying goes, hold the rope for them as they go to this land. And I'd like us then to consider together our responsibility this morning as we look to the record of the early church as our touchstone, as our model and our guide. 
What we're striving to do in our relationship with the folks is based upon the revelation of Scripture. We're not imagining that everything the Bible says about worldwide cross-cultural evangelism is something that applies directly to us. But we are looking at the text of Scripture for our guidance, for wisdom in how this partnership should work, looking now specifically at our own responsibility as a church. Our appeal to Scripture today is by no means exhaustive. I simply seek to establish a few stepping stones as we seek to negotiate with Christ's help across this stream. Picking one stone after another, we'll just lay a few out as we seek to cross this stream together. Perhaps in a sense, holding hands, the folks and us as, ch- as a church and as missionaries, balancing one another as we take our steps across these stones and seek to accomplish this work for Christ. But before we look to Scripture for light, for the sake of those who know little or nothing about our relationship with the folks, and I think will be helpful for all of us, let me just briefly bring all of us on board and with a brief historical recap that I think will serve us well as we consider this relationship. Scott and Julie joined Eden Baptist Church in the summer of 2008. That fall they began studies at Central Seminary, uh, choosing in some sense this church prior to uh, their consideration of their schooling there as they worked to identify a local church that they could work with as they were in uh, this area. Scott graduated this past May with a Master of Divinity degree, which is a rigorous four-year theological degree that includes studies in biblical Greek and Hebrew. And Julie graduated at the same time with a master's degree in biblical counseling as she seeks to prepare herself to be of aid and help to others in counsel. Much of Scott's youth was spent in Peru with his missionary parents and Julie grew up in Ecuador with missionary parents there. They came to our church with a determined plan to take their full fluency in Spanish to the least evangelized Spanish-speaking nation on the planet. And they did not come telling us what they would do and wondering if we would be part of it, but they came also looking for the guidance and direction of this church, wanting to work together with us to discern where God would uh, lead them and point them. I have three vital observations about these three and a half years, just after that brief historical sketch, I think there's three very significant developments or observations that are reasons why we're here today. The first is that we have, as a church, significantly invested in training and edifying this couple for ministry. We could think of a thousand things that have been left undone and much that we could do better. But that training has included private interaction and discipleship, informal meetings with them as a couple, and as individuals, and then more formal training with them as individuals and as a couple in various situations. Through these three and a half years, there has been a consistent touch on the part of this church to seek to build them up, encourage them, guide them, train them, teach them the ropes of ministry as they, in fact, have taught us in that relationship. Eden Baptist Church has invested in this couple. We have sought to prepare them for this work. That is vital to our consideration today. Secondly, the folks have lived among us as spiritual sponges, if I could say that. 
And that has nothing to do with their looks or anything like that. But they have just soaked up a biblical philosophy as they've worked with us to understand what the Bible teaches about local church ministry and how it looks on a daily basis. I could say it simply this way, they get it. They've gotten it from the beginning and I think have increasingly understood how to minister what the vision of the local church is according to the New Testament. And thirdly, the folks have lived among us as evangelists. And that is a very significant piece of this relationship and why, again, we're here today. Time does not permit a complete recounting, but they leave behind tangible fruit. They leave behind a gaping hole in our ministry. That's the kind of people you want to lose to cross-cultural mission. Those that are doing it where they are and are effective among you. With those thoughts in mind, and they are all essential as we work our way to consider Scripture today as a church, but let's turn then to the Bible for wisdom on our responsibility as a sending church. And I invite you to Acts chapter 13 where we consider again the seminal text describing the partnership between ascending local church and her representative evangelist. We've considered Acts chapter 13 at numerous times, and sometimes you might say, well, Acts 13 again? Let me say it this way, if you're going to teach on creation, you would probably go to Genesis 1 and 2. And to teach on creation outside of Genesis 1 and 2 might work on some level, but that, that's the seminal discussion about Creation. This is the seminal discussion, the genesis of the New Testament mission to Gentiles cross-culturally, globally. And so we turn to this text very purposefully and we'll turn to others. But Acts 13 marks a major shift in the storyline of the book of Acts. First 12 chapters, where is the emphasis? Jerusalem is the hub of the church's activity. The Jewish people are the primary target of evangelism. And the leadership, the prominent leader in the church is the Apostle Peter. As we come to Acts 13 and following, we note this shift, this emphasis now from Jerusalem to the city of Antioch, from the Jewish mission to the Gentile mission, and the prominent leader in the pages of the written text is the Apostle Paul and his team. Now Barnabas and Saul, the Apostle Paul, have transported financial aid to the struggling believers in Jerusalem and they return to their home church in Antioch. We pick up at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul the Apostle. So Barnabas and Saul rejoined three other prophet teachers who minister God's Word to the assembly. It was a notably diverse group of men and worthy of a, a lengthy consideration of who they were. We won't have time for that today. But it, they did bear witness as a group to the reconciling power of the Gospel. The church these men led together, very diverse men from diverse backgrounds, sought the face of God with fervent zeal. That was a characteristic of this church at Antioch. And we read in verse 2, that while they were worshiping the Lord, 
while they were fasting to intensify their worship of the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We do not have the details about how this happened, but the Holy Spirit gives some pointed word of direction to the church. Two observations we must be careful not to miss. The first is that the imperative to set apart Barnabas and Saul is given to the church. It's given to the body of believers there in Antioch. The Spirit directs them to set apart these two individuals to carry on mission. Barnabas and Saul did not go to the church and say, now, we've been thinking and praying about it and we really believe that God wants us to leave from here and to take the Gospel of Christ to other places. Not that there would be anything particularly evil about that, but the direction that is laid out here by the New Testament is that is the church's responsibility to set them apart. To identify them as individuals that God indeed has chosen for this mission to proclaim salvation in Christ's name. The church is called. Second observation, Barnabas and Saul were men who had long demonstrated in the context of that local church ministry, I think at least three characteristics. First of all, the ability to minister God's Word effectively. They were proven teachers. They have been working, laboring in this church at Antioch for some years. And it is clear to the church they are capable to teach the Word of God to God's people. Secondly, they demonstrated faithfulness in service to Christ. They'd just gotten back from Jerusalem, entrusted with a load of money. You didn't wire it, you had to physically carry it to Jerusalem. They were entrusted with this money and trusted to be representatives of the church as they ministered there in Jerusalem to the hurting believers. Faithful in service to Christ. Thirdly, they were men of godly character. And that was demonstrated within the assembly. Now obviously we take Barnabas and Saul and we're talking about major leaders in the early church movement. As we talk of Scott and Julie, I don't think they'd consider themselves major leaders in the evangelical cause by any means, nor is this church. So there's, there's certainly some distinctions here, but we see some parallels as well. There's a testing of the individuals within that congregation. The church knows who they're sending out. The church was sending out, indeed, its very best servants. Those servants would leave a gaping hole in the ministry. Imagine losing the Apostle Paul as your pastor-teacher. Wow! But that's how it ought to be. That's how it ought to be, to send out those that have been tried and proven true. So to summarize this partnership that we see emerging here from Acts 13, the church actively and corporately sends out high-quality, well-tested leaders who carry the Gospel to unreached peoples. Secondly, on the other side, those evangelists go in the power of the Spirit as representatives of I think in some sense of their local church, but ultimately of the Lord Jesus Himself. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
laid their hands on them. If you find that phrase in our culture, that generally goes along with a lawsuit or an arrest or something like that. To lay hands on somebody is usually not seen as a good thing. In this setting, think the context of the Old Testament, the sinner would lay his hands on the sacrificial lamb. What's the point? To identify with that lamb. I should die where this lamb is dying. My sin placed on the head of this lamb. Laying hands on someone was a way of identifying with them. And here corporately, the church will lay hands upon Barnabas and Saul to identify with their mission. It is a way of saying these are our men sent by our church to do the work of God in partnership with us. We choose this partnership with them. We invest them with the authority to take the message of salvation in Christ to the lost. So Barnabas and Saul leave on their mission with this authority, this official backing, and the fervent prayer support of their home-sending church. I'd like us to think of this as we consider it in light of our own mission here and our partnership with the folks. By God's grace, do we consider the significance of this moment? By God's grace, Eden Baptist Church is entering into this kind of relationship with Scott and Julie. We're we're entering into a partnership where we as Ascending Church are launching them out to carry the message of Christ. God appears to be using us that way. And tonight, as we gather, by the grace of God, we will lay hands on them, hands of identification, of communal support, to send them off from this place with the Gospel. We're doing more than to simply bless them on their way, saying we hope it all goes well, may God bless you. No, we are partnering with them in this enterprise. And that's how it is to be. This is our mission as a church together. And in keeping with Acts 13, we're sending out two members who have proven themselves as faithful servants among us. I indicated this earlier, but I think it is important that we consider people have come to Christ in baptism through their witness in the time they've been with us. Unbelievers have heard the Gospel on many levels and benefited from their compassionate outreach. Our youth have benefited from their leadership and their teaching. The church has been fed by Scott's preaching and spiritual leadership. There's been a great deal of mentoring that's gone on in that area of preaching, but there's been a great deal also of skill and progress that's been shown, I think, on his part as a a teacher of God's Word. And we always look forward to being fed the Word of God when Scott spoke. Believers have received counsel and support in their walk with God through the folks' biblical counsel. We're sending out a couple not to start ministry. We're sending out a couple who has demonstrated among us the desire and the capacity to minister faithfully to God's people and to reach out to the lost. They will leave a gaping hole here in many respects, and that is precisely as it should be. We rejoice. Coming back to the early church's mission, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4 as we jump ahead in the story of Paul's work to proclaim the gospel. 
Paul was the evangelist, you remember, that God used in Acts 16 to start the church at Philippi on the second missionary journey. Philippians chapter 4. And after Paul left Philippi in the region of Macedonia, the church contributed to his mission on a number of occasions. There was a warm relationship between the two of them and the Philippians sacrificed to see the gospel go forward. Antioch was Paul's sending church, but other churches partnered with them to support Paul's evangelistic endeavors, and chief among them the Philippian believers. Now some time has passed and Paul finds himself in a Roman prison. And he writes from jail to the Philippian church remembering their partnership and giving thanks for what has just recently taken place. Let's learn of it here in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The church had just sent financial aid by the hand of Epaphroditus, their representative. Paul says it's been a while. But I know that wasn't your fault. For some reason, they just weren't able to get a messenger there to find him or whatever the reason was. They hadn't been able to take help to him uh, in some time, but he rejoices that now they have revived their concern. Not that they weren't concerned, but that they lacked opportunity. To avoid any misunderstanding that his dependence was upon them, He qualifies, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. Right now he is. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. In Christ, literally the Greek phrase, and in Christ, He can do all things. God will strengthen Him in Christ in any and every situation. So I am not dependent upon your grace. I'm dependent on Christ's grace. Important qualifier. Having established that point, Paul thanks them for their kindness in contributing to him in his need continues on in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received now from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent by His hand, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's His confidence. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thessalonica, he references, that was a city very close to Philippi. might be a place you wouldn't expect a church to contribute. Well, those are neighbors. We know those people. But no, they poured out money even to go to the neighboring area of Thessalonica to support him. But the key, I think, here, at least for our consideration today, is verse 15. And you notice that phrase, no church entered into partnership with me except you. 
This translates entered into partnership, one Greek word, koinonia, to fellowship with, to partner together in the cause of the gospel. As I say often, remember, fellowship does not mean Christians eating together. We use it that way, we use it often that way, and eating can be part of our fellowship together, but it's a very small piece. As the New Testament uses the word koinonia, it consistently uses it of those who are partnering together. Our fellowship is not simply over a cup of coffee. Our fellowship is partnership in spreading the gospel of Christ to the ends of the world as a new community of faith. So you fellowshiped with me. You entered into partnership with me. Paul journeyed through Greece witnessing the provision of salvation in Jesus Christ and the Philippian church helped him as he worked his his way south through Greece by supporting the work that he was doing. Now notice what's said here. This should cause us great excitement, really, to think of what the biblical text says about these Philippian believers. In sacrificing financially to support Paul's mission, the Philippian church, verse 17, was bearing spiritual fruit. Verse 18, it was pleasing God. Verse 19, it was securing God's provision because God is infinitely rich and will never remain in anyone's debt. Remember the old hymn, O Zion, haste, give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. That is, send out individuals from your assembly. Give your resources. It goes on, pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And that last line, and all thy spending, Jesus will repay. That was Paul's confidence here. My God will supply every need of yours as you are working to supply my needs because Christ will never remain in our debt. All thy spending, Jesus will repay. What will the risen Christ repay Eden Baptist Church? We do not know. We cannot demand. But we are directing ourselves, centering ourselves now to become of significant support financially to Scott and Julie as they go to Spain. Lord willing, on January the 22nd, Eden Baptist Church will vote to assume 25% of their annual support. This is not simply a goal for 2012. We're seeking to set out on a track intending for this to be a long-term commitment of continuing support. It's not a sacrifice we can easily afford. It is a sacrifice we must step out in faith to fulfill. Will God use us to accomplish this work? We don't know. We don't know what He will do, how He will supply, and what grace He may pour out upon us. What we do know is that God is uniquely pleased with sacrifices His people make to proclaim His saving grace to unreached people. We can have confidence there. All we can do is give with a desire to bear spiritual fruit, to please the Lord in sacrifice, to receive from Him the supply to continue contributing to His cause. What He will do, He will do. And we rest in that. But we are stepping out in faith seeking to support this work in fulfillment, at least in response to what the Word of God indicates. So by offering such support, 
We're asking God to provide for us the means to continue partnering with the folks for worldwide proclamation of the Gospel. Now just thematically in this sermon, I'd like to go back a bit earlier in the story between Acts 13 and Philippians 4 to Romans chapter 15, if you'll make your way there. Romans chapter 15, before Paul was imprisoned at Rome, he wrote from the Greek city of Corinth to the Roman believers. Paul was long wanting to visit with them, we read in 15.23, and he plans to travel first to Jerusalem, bringing again financial aid to the believers there, and then on to Rome. He does not plan to stay very long in Rome. Verse 24 of chapter 15, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul is clearly determined here to take the Gospel to Spain and merely to pass through Rome on his way. Paul has two purposes for visiting the Romans, we see here. The first is to seek their support. To put it frankly, he wants to come through Rome to receive food, lodging, and cash. He desires that they will so supply his need that he'll be able to take the Gospel to Spain. It's going to take that to get there. And he does not apologize to say to the church, I hope that you will aid me on your way. Helped on my journey is a solid translation of a single Greek word. To bring them their team along. To bring Paul and his team along as they go to Spain. That's why he wants to come through Rome. I need your support. Secondly, we notice that he comes, verse 24, to enjoy their company. The Greek is again a single word, to be filled by them. It's difficult for us to know exactly how to put that into English, but the idea would be to find satisfaction in their interaction with one another. For the Roman church, partnering in the Gospel meant that they would serve to satisfy Paul's soul whenever he visited. That would be part of their labor. Not merely to provide physically, but also to provide something at the relational level that was utterly essential as he worked his way forward. Paul's plan will take some time, as he now explains in a brief digression. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm not heading west, I'm heading east. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that read there, the churches of Christ in Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, and Achaia, the southern, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the Jerusalem believers still struggling. Collections have been received. They were pleased to do it, he says, and indeed they owe it to them, for if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, the Gentiles, ought also to be of service to the Jews in material blessings. Back to the point. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I'm going to come from Jerusalem through Rome, and you, I trust, will help me on my way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. There's great confidence there that as He comes, God will bless Him on His way. How God blessed Him, how He got to Rome, will be very different than what He anticipated. Both by time and He did not expect to come with a chain around His wrist 
He comes as a prisoner of Rome. He does, in fact, get there, and we trust that they did, in fact, bless him and fill him in his soul as he related to them. But he moves on then and says, here's where we are now, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He wanted them to know his situation. He wanted them to pray in His behalf. There's a dangerous situation in Judea. In fact, the prayer was not answered the way that He would have liked. He's not delivered from those who wanted to harm Him. He's imprisoned by those who want to harm Him. Did the Jerusalem believers receive the gift from the Gentile churches? Undoubtedly, they profited from it, but the text of the New Testament is strangely very quiet about the impact of this gift. Not all may have gone exactly the way that Paul envisioned it, but the Roman believers were to join with him in praying and pleading with God to help fulfill the mission that he's undertaking. We notice here in verse 32 this phrase, refreshed in your company. Now think of this. Paul is going to come from his territory come from Jerusalem, westward to Rome, and he says, I trust to be refreshed on my way by you. There is a significant psychological security that is enjoyed by those who live in their homeland. If you travel overseas, you begin to start to see the importance of that security. You begin to feel the severing of certain things that make life work and that bring that security of soul. But then you move to another culture and take up residence in it and then you really sense it. Not something I've experienced. But that missionaries do experience. Cross-cultural evangelists give up this security of home. The cost of their sacrifice is eased ultimately by their trust in God but they can be significantly edified by churches that minister grace to those who travel with the Gospel. As churches, as supporting churches, as ascending church, we can be a kind of home away from home. We hope for the day that Scott and Julie folks really see Spain as home. That may never happen. We don't know. It's a gift of God. It may take a long time if it does happen. But I think we can take a cue here from Paul who would be a long ways from home but would find the refreshment of home in Rome from these believers. Here he would find fellow believers who were also transformed by the Gospel. Here he would find people who understood his worldview and his convictions. People who likewise believed in the truth of God's Word. Here he could find people who loved him as a brother in Christ. Here he could find vital support for his mission from people who shared his passion for the success of the Gospel. So let's highlight again just a few ideas from this passage. It teaches us that among our responsibilities as partners with the folks in the Gospel, 
Notice the phrase, verse 24, helped on my journey. Helped on my journey. We must support the folks financially so they are able to continue spreading the Gospel. It is not enough to merely bless them. We need to give supply and aid. Next phrase, enjoyed your company, verse 24. Whenever the folks visit us, we must strive to fill their souls with joy, encouraging them, blessing them with our love. We could add a third phrase and with this second phrase in verse 32, refreshed in your company. Refreshed in your company. Enjoying your company. There's a sense here in which by the grace of God, Eden Baptist Church will serve as a home whenever Scott and Julie are able to come back. That this will be a place where we refresh their souls. A place where away from home they feel that it is home. I don't think I need to deliver any warning at all. But just to paint the point more sharply, how horrible it would be for them to come back and to be surrounded by people within a congregation that use them as a sounding board for complaint, for criticism, who come and leech from them energies unnecessarily and selfishly. I I don't have any concern that that would ever be the case in this church, but we need to guard our own hearts from it. I need to guard mine. As missionaries who come back, it could be easy for me to share with them burdens and concerns. And it's not that that would be wrong in and of itself, but will they come back and we leech life from them? Or will they come back and we refresh them? We need to work together as a church to say that's the kind of church we're going to be for all of our missionaries to refresh and encourage and fill them with home and grace when they're back with us. The third phrase in this passage, which is a fourth but a third point, strive with me in your prayers. Verse 30. Strive with me in your prayers. When the folks visit us, we're to refresh them. When they're not here, particularly, we are to be praying for them with knowledge. Laboring in prayer for their spiritual health and for their prosperity. There are things that we learned about their mission today in the 10 o'clock hour. Exciting ideas that have been laid out as to what's specifically now beginning to uh, take shape as far as their mission in Spain You ask them, I guarantee you're going to agree with me, Scott and Julie, they know those plans aren't going to exactly work just like they have it planned. When they get to Spain, there's going to be all kinds of things they didn't anticipate. There's going to be trials and problems and opportunities that are all a bit unique and it's going to take some tweaking. Will we forget all about that? Or will we continue to know the needs that they have and to continue to raise them before the Lord in prayer? supporting them, working with them through our prayers. We are not able to go to Spain and proclaim the Gospel on a number of levels. But we are able to go to Spain and proclaim the Gospel through them as we enter into that mission through our prayers. Our prayers are a part of the significant force to take that message forward. Now we're not sufficient for these things. 
We simply are not. The financial support, the prayer support, the refreshing as a home church to supply, we are not sufficient for these things. We have much to learn as a church. But our hope and strength is supplied by our Lord Jesus Christ. May we trust Him to supply the power to fulfill our role in this partnership. And may He continue to supply our needs that we might supply theirs as they carry the Gospel to Spain. Will we become that kind of a church? What kind of a supporting church will we prove to be? In financial support, in knowledgeable prayer support, and as a home base of refreshment, encouragement, and stimulation in our walk together. For half a year we've seen the folks on Wednesday nights and Scott on a daily basis in the office here at church as they've sought to seek out partners among like-minded churches in the area on Sundays. But we do mark a really distinct turning point here in that that weekly presence among us is now over. They're with us today, but from this place, Scott won't be working here on a daily basis. They won't be here every Wednesday night for prayer. They will be living elsewhere. After a visit to Julie's parents in Ecuador, we're thankful they have this opportunity and they, these missionary families will be stretched and separated by many miles. They have this unique opportunity and then on to set up base in Illinois, seeking supporting churches to partner with us as their sending church. We will see them from time to time as Scott takes THM classes at Central, modular classes, continuing to uh, pursue that work. But we do release them today to pursue this mission to Spain in a unique way. It's with a sense of sadness that we mark this day and say goodbye, but we will miss them greatly, yet release them with joy, knowing that they're taking the message of Jesus to a very dark part of this world. A part that we can't reach ourselves physically, but can reach with them in their willingness to go there. Ironically, you find it ironic? Ironically, they're going to Spain. The very land that the Apostle Paul wanted to reach. Now there's debate as to whether he ever got there. It is possible if there was a release from Roman prison, which I think there was, that he made his way to Spain. But I don't think this is provable at all. There's no indication in the New Testament, I don't believe, that is solid that would indicate that he ever made it that way. There's some indicators that it seems that he went actually back east to strengthen churches after his release from Rome. That's all debatable among the historians, but it's not provable that he made it. What we do know is that for various historical reasons, some of which were shared with us today, this land has been uniquely resistant to the Gospel. Now on one level, that's discouraging. There's not a land of people that are vibrantly open to the Gospel. But on another level, this is thrilling we know that we're sending out these missionaries into a place where the Gospel is very seldom heard. Into regions and indeed into cities where there is no solid evangelical witness of any sort. How amazing this is that we here in the year of our Lord 2011 
are seeking still to reach Spain. To go where Paul, the apostle himself, wanted to go. And to partner together. May Jesus smile on that partnership. And may the Gospel of Christ penetrate hearts in northwest Spain. What we must do now is pray. Let's seek the Lord together. Our Father, we're not sufficient for these things with no pride at all Do we come before Your throne. We come recognizing that we are utterly dependent upon Your grace, upon Your provision. We enter out into a mission here that is over our heads as ascending church. Scott and Julie as a young couple going into a different culture. This is not the type of thing that we endeavor because we feel we are capable. It's the kind of thing that we endeavor because we know we're not. We attempt things for You, resting in, depending upon Your blessing and Your provision, not knowing what You'll be pleased to do. But we plead, Father, that this mission to northwest Spain would prove to be one of the greatest endeavors of this church. I pray, Father, that You'll pour out Your blessing on Scott and Julie, and we will pray more diligently for them later this night by Your grace. But we do pray now that You will sustain them and strengthen them. Bless in our meeting tonight as we interact with one another. And I pray that You will bless in their journeys, giving grace and mercy along the way. And Father, we plead that You would supply our needs that we may realize together fruit in Spain. We do not know why this land has been so resistant to the Gospel, but we acknowledge before You that our confidence is not in us. It's in the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell itself being unable to stop. May You send it richly and freely and successfully through this couple, through these choice servants of Christ. And Father, I pray that the things we've considered today that we would indeed serve to be a faithful supporting church, a faithful sending church that strives to be home for them and hold the rope. May we never forget this call and be faithful to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.